0: The thing is not how you are on your best days, how can you step up on your worst day? When everything is going terrible, when you are tired, when you are frustrated, when you are edgy, how do you treat other people? Fuck pain, fuck heartbreak. I'm still in love with life.
1: Cultural headquarters of the future capital of the free-thinking state of America, known as Los Angeles. This is the Drunken Dows Podcast. On this episode, it's interview time again as Danielle's mom, Gloria Mationi, joins us to tell us all about her new book, California Sister, which tells a fictionalized version of her own heartbreaking experience with a sister who had become completely unable to communicate leaving her to face impossible decisions, along with a great discussion of the writer's battle with the muse to find the right way to tell the story. It's good stuff, so here we go. And now, asking you all to spread the words that corporations are not persons, I'm Rich Evers, and my partner in crime, the savage philosopher and middle finger of the gods, Daniele Bolelli, as we invite you to lower the lights Batten down the hatches and prepare to open your mind. For the Drunken Dows podcast, begins now. Welcome back everybody to another fine episode of the Drunken Dows podcast, episode 243. It's unbelievable, but today a very special guest who I'll allow Danielle Belletti to introduce right now.
0: Yes, indeed. My own sweet mother today is our guest. So before we get to that, let me thank Shore Design T-shirts for their amazing support over the years. I want to give a shout out to Dakota Pure Bison. Uh, if you want to check it out, there's uh, dakotapurebison.com and you get a discount code if you use HOF10 on their amazing bison related products. Delicious. other than that thank you to uh, the usual suspects so we got materrawines.com and Om Sellers for keeping the drunk into the drunken taoist having said all that I think there's a list of people who donated since the last time we recorded an episode so let's Excellent. give a big thank you to let the pottering begin Jim D'Amico, Joseph Lord, uh, Miguel Centano, Matthew Cromer, Lane Raper, Donald Chip Luis Pesquera, Yanni Linima, Jesse Rantakanga, Aaron Weisner, Clayton Payne, Carl Tench... Okay, Carl, I don't know how the hell to pronounce your last name. I'm guessing it's Tenchkoff, something like that. Stephen McKee, (laughs) Daniel Fischel, Frederick Ann, Jonathan Waterloo, Ryan Marklin. Keegan Walsh, Stephen Notariani, Lisa Robles, Nick Zunic, Aistis Juska, John Vergara, Joseph Lor, Nicola Toni. You guys are superstars. Thank you so much for supporting us. That helps a whole lot. If you want to join this brave band of heroes, paypal.me forward slash dbolelli. That is paypal.me forward slash dbolelli. Or otherwise, you can always donate at body 1974 yahoocom That's
1: B-O-D-H-I-1974yahoo.com. Anything I'm missing? I would just uh, add really quickly that Kiva.org continues to march along. You guys are welcome to join in. $25 loans can help people out all across the world. And uh, we'd love to have you. Currently, we are up to... Let me look at my updated numbers here. I pressed the wrong button, but I'm going to find it. <laughs> oh, yeah. The latest update over $210,000 raised by our own Team Drunken Taoist. That's just incredible. On our way to $250,000 at some point. Over 7,000 loans. You know, this is something that's been going on for, for almost a decade now and always appreciated. And we haven't mentioned in a little while, so I want to mention that. So I think that's about all I got. Sweet, on
0: that happy note, let's jump into the episode. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, new episode of The Drunken Taoist. Joining us today in this warm day in Ohio is my own sweet mother, Gloria Mattioni. You were, you were on the show with us, uh, how long ago? In
2: 2014.
0: 2014, when we talked about a previous book of yours, Dakota Warrior. And now, nine years later, here we are. And we'll jump into actually a book you recently written. Now is what, about the one-year anniversary of yes, your book? Yes,
2: it has been published on September 15, 2022. Mm-hmm. So the book birthday is coming up.
0: Great. One-year anniversary of California Sister. Now, unlike Dakota Warrior, uh, this is fiction. Dakota Warrior was non-fiction. This is a fictional book. Want to tell us a little bit about the book?
2: Yes. Yes. Um, Also, because exactly the the two previous books that I published in the U.S. I published four other books before in Italy. In Italy, right? But when I started to publish in the U.S., actually I published narrative nonfiction. Both books were narrative nonfiction. Then instead, I decided to write fiction because I wanted to write a story pretty close to my heart because it's inspired by real life and. um, it's no mystery. I had a similar experience um, when my sister had a brain hemorrhage in Italy and uh, I didn't want to write a memoir Why my publisher and uh, the agent I consulted were pushing me mm-hmm. to write a memoir because I thought I really needed the distance. I needed to see things in a different way and also I don't really like to be in the spotlight so much so my own things
0: because <laughs> so the distant aspect you feel that like with um, if you're just talking from this app and to me this and that it, it's kind of harder to
2: very hard very hard also because I think that in some way there is always uh, a part of us that in some way wants to be better of what we are. Sure. So you kind of give a version of yourself that uh, (laughs) since it's for the is a little bit (laughs) while instead I really wanna bleed it on the page. I wanna really to take out also the dirt, the doubts, the Mm -hmm.
0: uh,
2: the wrong choices, you know, all this stuff. And um
0: so having a character that's you but is not you makes it easier to right go there. and
2: of course it's not me because also I change a lot yeah, of, of course, things you fictionalized, but but but. for sure it's uh, some things are there yeah and um, the other thing in the beginning I really wanted to have more distance so I tried to write the book as a screenplay mm-hmm. the story as a yeah. screenplay um I'm very visual yeah. so I always see stories. Uh, before putting them on page, mm-hmm. before uh, I imagine them, I dream about them, I really, yes, I see the scenes one after the other. But um, I started to write the screenplay. And uh, when I did, I realized that something was totally amiss. And what was amiss uh, is uh, was the possibility to express the emotions of uh, the person, the sister who had a brain hemorrhage and so was brain damage and her neurons were obviously not working, not firing yeah. up. So her capacity, her ability to think, was definitely not the ability to think of a rational person if it was there and yeah, maybe was not always there. And in some way, I really wanted to express that and to give a voice to the sister who lost her voice.
0: Yeah, because in fiction, uh, in a novel, you can go inside. You can talk about feelings and emotion and perspective and things, which clearly in a screenplay you cannot, because a screenplay is essentially describing what the camera is catching, which is only—I mean, even like if you take a character who is non-verbal, you can see their expressions you can throw adjectives describing them to give a glimpse of what's happening inside, but you're not really getting the the perspective from the inside out.
2: Yes, exactly. And uh, that was also the choice uh, to write uh, instead of writing in third person or in first person only uh, in the perspective of the healthy sister who rushes to Italy to help the sister who become victim of the brain stroke and uh, i went through all of that so after the screenplay i tried to write in third person was not clicking something was again something was missing and uh, actually i did something weird i at some point i did some some kind of uh, crowd you know research so asking uh, a selected groups of group of friends uh, that i respected uh, giving them a bit of the story and asking them would you prefer to have it in Claire's voice or in Undina's voice, that is like the other
0: percent and, <laughs> <for real? Yeah. laughs> <laughs> and
2: they got exactly that, more or less Half 50%. So thing, I was like, fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so I did a really good experiment, you know? And um, so but it was good to do the experiment because that uh, put emotion on some things evidently and then I realized no I don't want to actually I think 60% was more like no we want to hear Claire's voice the sister who rushes from Los Angeles and I was like Claire's voice you know Claire is a character that is totally action driven she has no inner thoughts not so much you know she's always pushing pushing and of course she has a incredible motivation she wants her sister to get better and the time frame is limited because you need to rush for you know to have results so i was like claire doesn't even have all this inner turmoil but i'm sure that when Her sister wakes up in a body that doesn't respond to her in any way because she's tetraplegic. So she cannot move one finger. She cannot talk. In the beginning, she can't even breathe on her own, so she has to have a tracheostomy. Mm -hmm. She can not feed herself, so she has to have a GI tube. And all of that, it's traumatizing. And of course, you can react in many different ways. I was so curious to imagine what a person can think in a case like that. And also... What can think of her sister? Yeah. You know, trying to help her so much, but for sure at some point becoming bossy. Because uh, when you have to be the caregiver of a person who cannot express what they want, yeah. it's hard, right? You have to make tough choices, and sometimes may- maybe you go beyond what the person wants. Yeah,
0: because they're making choices with zero feedback, which is always dangerous business.
2: And that uh, brings us to one of the team basically the big question that is at the base of the book and is how anybody can know what's best for others if they don't tell you if they don't let you know and that is a question that unfortunately everybody who has been a caregiver or you know, for even for other cases, I'm thinking about people who have uh, loved ones with Alzheimer's or mental illness or things like that. Yeah, yeah. And okay. you have to make decisions for them, and this is a crazy responsibility. And uh, it's a burden, and of course, on the other side, you know that you are the only person who can do that. Otherwise, um, this person will go into the system and uh, choices will be made by others yeah. who have no relationship with her, no? So it's, um, it's a tough decision, definitely, but anyhow, the book is set uh, in 2008, it's contemporary fiction, mm-hmm. obviously, and is set uh, partially in Los Angeles. And uh, most of it is set uh, in Italy, mm-hmm. in the city of Bergamo, where Ondina lives, the sister who got sick. It's uh, a story of hope, definitely love and also mm, grief, of course, obviously, because you start grieving for a person yeah. when she is in this condition definitely. and the pain is incredible, yeah. At the same time, it's a journey. It's a journey for both sisters. The personality of the sisters that uh, are so opposite, they seem so opposite in the beginning, uh, even if they remain so close, despite the the physical distance. One lives in Los Angeles, they are in Bergamo. At the end of this journey, it's almost like they trade values and uh, convictions. So Claire was the one that always based her life on making choices that made her free, made her feel like she was Mm
0: -hmm.
2: always free to do what she wanted, against dogmas, against morality or things like that. And instead Ondina was all about love and Mm -hmm. friendship and being a people person and very cautious in her choices and all of that. And that is expressed also in a very light way and through humor about, you know, daily choices that they, they make, like how they choose furniture sure, or sure. how they, because of course Claire goes to live in Dina's house when she's in Bergamo. And so she's reminded from all the things that she has around of their differences.
0: Yes, of course.
2: And so there is definitely also humor in the book that lighten up because of course, otherwise yeah, it would be a subject. little heavy yeah. <laughs> subject. and there is beauty because as i said you know it's like uh, when you have to express uh, what a person who cannot uh, express herself in words feels uh, you have to use other things you have to use all the senses uh, what is of course what you can get through touch what you can get uh, in a partial visual because Mm -hmm. you don't know how much she actually can see when there is a a a nerve damage, you know, also that, or um, how can a person hear? Yeah. So, music, a lot of music. Ondina used to be a songwriter, a singer-songwriter, so in the the book there are also four songs that I actually wrote, the lyrics, of course, not the melody, even if Isabella is starting to work on the melodies. And... um, and all of that, you know, the beauty—I mean, just uh, the common uh, love for nature and uh, for wildlife, for uh, the colors of fall, or all of that—that that all waves in in the in the matter, in the mm-hmm. in the meat of the book, yeah. you know. And um, and that's basically what the story is. So, in the end, I decided to write it in both voices, as you can get from what I'm saying. So it's a double point Mm -hmm. of view, double narration. Um, Most of the narration is through Claire because, of course, the book goes fast in one year. So there is a lot of uh, things happening. But the chapters by Ondina, I was very happy because a lot of my readers in the reviews, they say that uh, they particularly appreciate those chapters. And of course it was very difficult very challenging to write in a way that is not uh, so linear that is you know it's a different yeah. way to see the world to express uh, things in some parts is more linear because she's more conscious yeah. and so she can express things and uh, and was also was also hard to see how in some some ways sometimes uh, Ondina hates her sister of course because, of course, you know, it's normal. It's, yeah. uh, I think it's uh, completely understandable, you know, that when somebody tried to push you beyond your limits at some point, you're like, what for?
1: Yeah.
2: I'm still in this situation. So No, that makes sense. And in this case, I think it has even more sense because Ondina was a very verbal person before getting sick and uh, very rational Um over-analytical, somebody would question herself, uh, doubt herself, write a journal, uh, and uh, analyze every experience. So completely opposite than Claire, obviously. So when uh, she lost uh, this uh, capacity, this ability to express herself in words, I think it was for her it was even more problematic more uh, painful because she was somebody who would agonize on the choice of uh, a word instead of the other so yeah i think that uh, the choice to write in both voices in the end paid off and uh, the reviews by the readers confirmed that and uh yeah, and I would like, uh, now I'm trying to write the adaptation for the book, and uh, that's the difficulty because uh, I would like to keep that in, also in the in the film version, the screen version, and uh, that's a big challenge that I didn't solve yet, <laughs> how to show all of this.
1: Since this echoes your own life so closely, is a lot of each of you in there? Was she that way? Was she analytical and you were a little more? She
2: was, yes. Yeah, she was, definitely. Yeah, yeah, that's how my sister was, definitely. Very cautious, people person, um, very devoted to all her friends, and uh, um, love-driven. Yeah.
0: <laughs> this is something we talked about before, but I guess the process of writing, you know, I, as a... A way to express grief as a way to deal with loss as a way to deal with heavy things like that you know in which way because i can see it both ways uh, sorry let me preface the question with one thing like i remember like for me writing not afraid for example there was one aspect that you can say okay writing serves as therapy to some degree because it forces you to deal with things that sometimes you may not want to deal with you to go into places and see you know if it forces you to come to terms with something so it makes you express some emotions and that's the therapeutic part by the same token and that's probably the way I feel about therapy in general you are also going to dig into trauma into things that hurt you some of it I don't know how it works, because in some cases I see some people go there, deal with it, and things get not resolved per se, but emotionally you kind of turn a corner. Other times is you just start up trauma again to the 10th level, and by going there and feeling those emotions, it actually re-traumatizes you rather than heal you. So what do you think is the difference between those? Because the process is the same. You know, you're doing the same thing, but the outcome is not exactly guaranteed. You know, the the nice version tells you, you write about traumas and things and it will serve as therapy. Maybe, or maybe that, I mean, even like, actually, even people in therapy, sometimes there are people who gain tremendously from it and people who get horrendously depressed or get worse because they are not, well equipped to deal with that kind of trauma in that way. I
2: absolutely agree, I mean I'm totally not against therapy and not pro-therapy for everybody yeah. as the, you know one one solution that can heal all, because mm-hmm. it doesn't, you know, that can heal soul So, in my case, in fact, the reason why I said um, and that goes back to the question you asked me before, the choice of writing fiction mm, that's also one of the reasons, because for me, fiction is therapy. Right. Different than writing about the the experience and yeah. the real course of events and reconstructing all of that. No. And instead, the freedom that you have um, with fiction, in some way, allowed me to go back to some events that were mm-hmm. definitely difficult. I cried a lot of when I was uh, writing the book. Of course. But uh, I also had the possibility of um, inferring into that, you know, some funny notes, some humor, some uh, other thing that actually I tried to do even when I was with my sister because remembering how uh, witty she was, I was always trying to do the same. But particularly in writing, uh, you can... Get out of yourself and have that distance and yeah. see the situation as if it was away, as if it was out of you. Right.
0: Even though your fiction clearly is not like I'm writing about something in an entire different world, different people with yeah. those themes that I know it's autobiographical, but really nobody else would. This is a really close Close uh, run from the actual reality. It's it fiction, but also it's really tied to it. It
2: is, definitely. It is, but. Uh, um, it's it,
0: enough for you. Uh, if I it's can. It's enough distance to be yeah, able to. Not write. only,
2: but I'm saying uh, uh, usually I judge things from the results. Yeah. You know? So what happened is that after I wrote the book, and it took me eight years, as you know, because I tried many times and I had to stop because I was breaking down. Right. When I finally wrote the book, that happened during the pandemic also because I was now or never, you know, since I was home much more and all of that. So I was like, I need to get this book done. And when I finally did it, all of a sudden, I could speak about my sister without breaking down.
0: Mm -hmm. While
2: before, I could never. Right. Every time somebody would ask me about that, I would just break down you know so So in
0: your case you did feel like it worked therapeutically like it did help you somewhat
2: it did help me
0: um What do you think is the difference? Like, why do you think you were able to get this good outcome when, as you said, you know, you tried multiple times and it was not working well, it was damaging you, if anything?
2: Probably because it happened at the right time. Because uh, I finally decided to do it when? When I also decided to move away from Los Angeles to Ohio. So there was a huge change in my life. I wanted a new start and I felt like I need, to get done what i started was important for me to finish and i never finished so i was like okay now i do it and i was more convinced Mm -hmm. and so i think yeah probably he needed those eight years to build up you know to get me to a point where it was therapeutical
0: i mean it's interesting i think because the You know, how many times do you start a process like that with the results that don't work and before you say, Maybe I shouldn't do it? You know, maybe it's not a good idea. And you know, you did it enough times and yet, you know, try number, or whatever, I don't know what try it was, but like six, seven, eight, nine that you go through the book it actually clicked and they work. So it's interesting how that is. I
2: think it also happened when I finally started to hear in my mind yeah. both voices. Okay. Because when I decided, yeah, I am going to write a fiction and I'm going to have a dual narration and the two voices, I still couldn't uh, really hear them. Of course. And instead, then I really started to... So it pressed, you know. It was like, I need to put it down this stuff.
0: That is a very interesting process that you refer to, because I noticed I was talking with Isabella like yesterday, I think. Uh, we were talking because um, I'm writing a short story for her. And, you know, unlike other stuff I've written, like when I am work on the Caravaggio book, I was taking notes on it for years and years, right? So clearly I know those characters, like the back of my hand. You know, there's a po- point where... In this case, the short story, I thought about it two weeks ago. I don't know that character the same way. And it's interesting to talk about know a character because it's like, what the hell does it mean? You're making it up. But what's there to know? But it's weird. It's like it's almost a shamanic process where you hear, I mean, in your case, it's even more so because it's based on a real person. A real person was extremely close to you. But even in a case where the character is completely well, fictionalized, yeah. how it's almost like, you hear the muse come to whisper you and say, this person has this, this, and this. And, and, you know, you are, of course you are creating the character, but it doesn't feel like you are creating the character. It feel like exactly. you, are, you are being revealed something about this yeah. character that pops up in front of you. And you go like, ha, huh, good to meet you. I didn't know, you know, yeah. it's it doesn't feel it's like you And exactly you're,
2: the, that. And that's the beauty of it, yeah. you know, because it's like, yeah, I can decide to write a story like I'm doing now. I'm mm-hmm. writing a detective story, totally hard totally a different thing, like based in Los Angeles. Yeah. And I have this woman detective and I have some clues. But then when I was trying to plot it, mm-hmm. it didn't work. And then all of a sudden I start to write and I start to write in first person, yeah. while in the beginning I had decided no. Of course, I'm going to write interperson. It's so much easier for a plot-driven novel. But no, instead, all of a sudden, it was like, no, she want to talk. And I have no idea where she want to go. I know more or less the idea of the story, sure, but I didn't outline it yet. Because uh, she's driving it, even if it seems strange, no character-driven thriller, but That's how it is.
1: Actors do a lot of the same thing when they're getting characters together because they'll have a whole... They'll build a whole backstory. Uh The whole film may take this tiny little portion of time, but they need to know what they're drawing on. Right. Why went crazy? Because what happened when they were nine? It seems kind of silly, but without it, you know, you don't... That's what you're saying. You don't know what this character is going to do because these sort of presets aren't there.
0: Yeah, yeah. You feel... No, and it's very interesting that you say about acting because especially in a movie as you say, you're only covering this character from point A to point B. And it's a fairly straightforward journey, but for an actor to really bring it home, they need to know more than what the screenplay is Absolutely. telling them in 90 yeah. pages of action and stuff. Yeah. So it's uh, no, it's interesting. It's, I have the exact opposite process as you do. I'm extremely outline-driven. <laughs> like, I want... Before I ever write a line—actually, that's not true. I may get some lines that come to me that may even be the inspiration for the whole story, and I'll jot down that one line. But then before I get to write down something more complex and long, I need to know where I'm going. I need to know what the chapter division is like. I need to know—like, the I need to see it entirely in my head, because for me— Writing, Trying to write in a good language, trying to write in a captivating language, trying to hook the reader in is such hard work in itself that the last thing I want to do is to be thinking about style while I'm thinking about plot. I'm like, no, I need to have the plot resolved so I can dedicate 100% of myself to just tell. Now I know the story, I just need to tell it in a beautiful way. If I have to come up with the story at the same time,
1: yeah, uh, and that's no a way.
2: perfect way to do it, and is basically what every writing class would al- would advise you to do. But as you know, I don't do things by the book. I mean, it works right. for you and it's great. Yeah. And I think also the fact that you are a teacher, mm-hmm. you know, also make puts you in that mind state. For me, it's the opposite. I used to do that a lot when I was a journalist. You know, I outline all my stories and. Uh, you know, yeah. and because also when you have to write a huge, uh, I mean, a big theme, it may be 3,000 words, yeah, 2,000 yeah. words. Of course, you have to outline because you're like, otherwise, where do I go?
0: Yeah, you may go too long But or too I short did it or, for yeah.
2: so long that at some point I was yeah. like, I don't want to do it, <laughs> you know. And even if I do it, then I change it so many times. So I'm like, what's the point? Yeah. You know, I just start. At some point, i lever outline, but usually comes after I start writing for a while. Right. So I have maybe five, six chapters, and then I know what's happening in the next five, but not <laughs> beyond yeah, no, that. I, I kinda, you know? I, in
0: that sense, I do a mix, because yeah. I do like scenes where a scene comes to me where I may not know anything before or after, but I have that scene down to the last detail, and I love it, and I write it down pretty much as if I was writing it. But then it sits there in a pile of notes where, I mean, when I started writing the Caravaggio novel, I had, I don't know, 40, 50 pages of single space notes. It's like half a book already, but it's not, you know, it's just yeah, the raw material <laughs> just for answer. me to draw the. I remember. When the, yeah, I mean, it, it's trippy how that works. It's trippy how uh, the process is different. Like, it's not right or wrong. You have to figure out your own. Like, for me, even any kind of learning, Like, I like, for example, the almost scholastic model of the syllabus. You know, if I'm going to learn something, let me backtrack. Your way and my way, I don't think there's one better than the other. It's what works for everybody. You know, you find your way. When it comes to teaching certain things, I do feel that there are ways that are better. Like, for example, in a lot of martial arts, it drives me insane when I think about how much time I spend learning certain things essentially due to horrible pedagogy whereas like the same results could have been achieved in like one tenth of a time Absolutely. Uh, to me it was like okay if you are gonna build up certain skill you have to do step one here step two here step three there whereas so much of what was taught was like today i'm gonna show you step eight and tomorrow we do step two and by the way i'm not even telling you that there are steps or they are connected in any way shape or form and then next to and i'm like I mean, sure, if you put in enough time and energy, you will get good regardless. But that's not a very efficient way to get the job done, you know. Absolutely. To me, like having a syllabus where really clearly shows you what the path is step one two three and so on i love that because no, I, I absolutely
2: agree particularly if you teach to somebody yeah. else that i couldn't teach my way of writing sure. to somebody because there is no way that it's
0: yours right
2: yeah it's mine and uh, if somebody gets it because they get it naturally yeah. it's one thing but for sure i wouldn't teach it it's right, right? Uh, i'm not interested in teaching any writing style to anybody i actually claim my own way and i don't want to be pushed to do different i did because i'm a very curious person so i did some uh, writing workshops some writing classes because i was like let's see what it is about you know (laughs) and all of that but uh, and I mean I got also some great tips. Like one thing that when you were talking about the characters, you no know, mm-hmm. one great tip that I was given during a workshop yeah. was like at some point when your character starts to get a shape and all of that, interviewing the character. Mm-hmm. So asking the questions, you know, that you really think are important yeah. for you or for the story or all of that. And let See try to out. let right. yeah, yeah so that in some way you might be surprised because when you answer in another voice uh, you might have some surprising sure. answers and that's a really good tip yep. and i mean i got other great tips you know yep. from um, particularly from i think the the best workshops i took was with the community of writers that is an organization based in washington state in particular with janet fitch mm-hmm. classes mm-hmm. you no know? and um, she um, i took a workshop called the art of the sentence and uh, what uh, she what remained with me was that she was saying you start writing and usually people tell you just go with the first draft throw mm-hmm. down you yeah. know don't worry and just go to the end i can't me neither because if i don't see something beautiful at least something in let's say that i write 2000 words okay in those 2000 words it needs a, to speak to me with at least a couple of beautiful sentences yeah beautiful, you know, that makes me, give me emotion, you know, in some way. And she exactly said that, it was called The Art of the Sentence, and she was like, don't write the chapter, write the page. And then when you arrive to the page, don't write the page, write the sentence. Of course, not all the time, otherwise it would take another nine years to write another book. But uh, I think it's very good good advice, you know, because it's like, okay, then your style starts to get by itself like i was told after i wrote california sister but even with dakota warrior that i write a very lyrical style because i mix um, poems um, songwriting uh, but i didn't mean to do that it's not like i told myself now i'm gonna write (laughs) lyrical style it just came out also because uh, you I write, as I said, I'm very visual, but I also like music, but I also yeah. hear things, but I need the, to touch, I need the sensation. And yeah. in this book, when you're dealing with a non-verbal person, how do you communicate? Of course. You communicate a lot through that, yeah. you know, hearing music that can remind of what it was, together, or massaging a person, mm-hmm. touching a person, because... Talking and talking and talking is not going to take you anywhere. Of course. So, in some way, even this was experienced when my sister was sick, uh, seeing friends coming to visit. Some of them could be perfectly silent, staying there, holding her hand, smiling, caressing her, and she was relaxed. You could see that she was serene, she was happy in some way. Sure. and then there was ad- there were other friends who would come and they would speak non-stop you know <laughs> telling her everything that happened in their lives right. and all of that and i mean that's okay but of course you know i was like okay <laughs> you know
0: yeah, maybe a different way <laughs> a yeah. different
2: way but of course you let people do what they can do you know and those people were the ones that at some point they didn't come to visit anymore because they couldn't take it. Yeah. You know, because the fact that they didn't have somebody answering their talk yeah. was limiting the communication. Of course.
0: Know. Yeah, that's rough because if somebody clearly so relying on communication, I mean, in some way it's sweet because they are trying to act like nothing changed. I'm still going to share because that's what they know how. And I mean, yeah, that's what they know how it applies to everything. You know, writing, communication, interpersonal communication. Like in the writing one, one that drove me crazy, there's a guy, we had him on the podcast actually a while back, uh, Ryan Holiday. He has a thing, uh, don't get me wrong, <laughs> he does great things. He So it, this is not a criticism of him. It's just there's a sentence of his that I find like, yeah, it's not how it works for me at all. He has, a, I forget exactly how he phrased it, but there's something along the lines of... Uh, you know, the first draft of everything is trash. And so is the second, and so is the third. And by the time you get to the fifth, I forget the exact number, but something, right? So he's a believer on first draft is crap, you just do it. Second and to me, I'm like, and again, I'm not using it as a slant against it, but I'm like, maybe your first draft is trash. Because, you know, (laughs) I spent forever on my first draft. So to me, and I get it, because somebody for them, it may be trash but not in a bad way maybe trash because they need to just throw it all out there yeah and then they will think it through and then they'll clean it up and then they'll add the style and then they do all that i do all that before and again it's not a better way or a worse way it's just my way to me it's like once i finish the first draft of course there's need for editing and cleaning up and thinking things but that's like 10% 10% is left, you know. I'll change probably 10% of what I've written.
2: i change changed much more. I mean, I went through seven revisions yeah. of the novel, but um, not because the first one was trash. Mm-hmm. I mean, trash, of course, sure. is his way to sure. say, but it's the truth. It's what every, every writing teacher tells you to do. Throw it down. And I'm like, no, I don't throw it down yeah, exactly. because I don't feel good about it, you know.
0: Yeah, um, that's what I mean. It's like you need to find a system that works for you yeah. there is no system that's good for everybody in that way i mean it's like one of our favorites tom robbins writes uh, he would say that if he wrote one great sentence he was yeah. happy he for do. the exactly. day yeah. exactly you know it's like
2: and not by any chance tom robbins wrote a book every three years even not more even more, more or four or not five, like yeah. now that they tell you same thing you know the push to no you have to write a book uh, Every six months, publish a book every six months, because otherwise you're going to lose your readership. And I'm like, if I lose my readership that, because of that, I lose my readership. And besides that,
0: with the money that you make from books exactly. now, unless you are writing Game of Thrones, yeah, you need to write every three seconds because you're not making enough money to sort of to live on so yeah. you do need to have that kind of thriller writer thing there they pop but out that's exactly three books what a that, year but and they're I like mean,
2: the reality is on amazon last year there was four millions new titles
0: Jesus Christ!
2: four millions okay so of course the competition is huge right yeah. because people have that and most of them but no, let's say not most of them, but the big part of them are uh, authors and publisher put them out even when they are just new yeah. for free or $0. Oh. $0.99 Kindle or yeah. Kindle Unlimited or things like that. So people don't even buy books. Sure. No? Very It's very limited the market. So sure, if you write books like one after the other, series or things like that, and you want to do, that's the way that they tell you like there is a book on Facebook called uh, 20 to 50,000 meaning you write 20 books in a limited time to make $50,000 and uh, you know it's uh, like uh, I mean mean, uh, not that I despise you know it's a method of course because I'm curious so I went to see you know how was this thing it's a method, sure, but I mean, am I interested in that? No. Not at all, you know, because I do write because I love writing. Yeah, I mean, it's that's, my the,
0: that's the assembly line model of writing, which is like, come on, man. And, and you know, there are people... I mean, there are people who do that to a high level where they can do it. Well, like, think yeah. about like Stephen King or something. How yeah. many damn books has that guy written? I don't. I'm actually curious. I'm gonna look it up as we speak. It's gotta so, be in eighties, but by like, now. yeah. I mean, it's an insane amount. An insane and amount. Uh, even
2: because he didn't start so early, so
0: he's not the kind of writer. I mean, don't get me wrong. He's a great writer. He's not the kind of writing that I like.
2: Me neither. But, but I respect him exactly, because I exactly. mean, uh, his books are intense yeah no totally he does
0: great stuff but yeah it's for most people yes that's you turn into an asset even if you have some writing talent if you put that kind of pressure of having to crank stuff out every three seconds it's like yeah there's no way that you can maintain the quality that just no and he doesn't
1: yeah the endings don't land the way they used to right but it's funny mentioning like all these different things in Gretchen and I went and saw the Keith Haring exhibit at the Broad a couple weeks ago, and it had live footage of how he would paint these gigantic murals. And he's clearly your style. He would get over it with the paintbrush and just let it pour out yeah. of his mm-hmm. mind onto, onto the canvas. And But then when you talk about editing, yeah. like actual video editing, I think I'm more of the, um, I collect my pieces I pull the different stories out or the different assemblies of everybody telling the same thing. You know, this was me coming out. And then I build them out of those. Mm-hmm. So I go wide and then yeah. right. narrow it down. But you could also be pretty preform with that. pre Freeform if you wanted to as well. And just sort of yeah. grab the ones that really zung you the most and just sort of let it tell itself. What
2: I do is a very different method. When I started to get some shape, I use a storyboard. And I move the scenes. yeah. So it's very graphic, very visual, Yeah, yeah. You know? no, so I put so a big board so on the wall yeah. and then I start to put scenes there yeah. and then I move them and then in the end is a horrible graffiti. But that's pencil.
1: okay. I mean, so that's I a part of it. That's sort of the entropy of the whole thing. Like once you get the storyboards, because then my cards get torn in half because this is actually two stories. This is A and B. Yes. These will. And then when you can get somebody or four or five people telling the same story, now you really got something going.
2: Yeah. Exactly. I'm
1: wondering about the the, the the character who has lost her verbal. Is she, is she completely aware inside, just unable to communicate?
2: No, um, it, it it depends. Okay, so she it, is. Go, she goes back and forth. Also, because when she does some progress in the beginning, she wakes up. But then there is some trauma in the hospital, so she moves back. You know, and her, and the same thing when there was some progress, and she in some way believes that she can get better. She's more conscious, you know, even if she refused to talk to the doctor, to talk, to express to the doctor, to answer their neurological tests that are, by the way, ridiculous, you know, like people coming in and getting out of the room in five people in 30 seconds, you know, and that's the Just neurological Just eat your cotton. you'll be fine. So, Pretty much. <laughs> the Ondina, the character who's, uh, who has this brain damage, she space out in that case. She doesn't want to see them but with the sister instead she answers you know she communicates she not always when she is disappointed and she doesn't believe in all that her sister tries to pump her up you know telling her how better she will become and all of that She spaces out also from the sister obviously so she's definitely in, in a locked in syndrome but many times the doctors uh, classify her classify her vegetative state and that's also the the heaviness of that you know like when a person is really like in a um, really like in a bowl, in a glass bowl, no and can't break it
1: so has no actual awareness of what's going on around her other than she can be gotten to by touch
0: well and when you do have it you can communicate. You can't do anything anyway. Right. So suddenly you pop in and you are present, very painful, and exactly. you are like stuck.
2: You pop in in your present, and do you realize that you can't move a finger, that you can't, you know, because the tetraplegia is like that, you know. So you can't move. You can talk, and uh, you know, even if you make some progress at some point, Claire takes her home and. Uh, does a lot of physical therapy you know, with her at home and all of that. So she's able to put her on a stand. And things change a lot when you are in the vertical position on your feet and all of that. So, of course, there is progress. No? But then maybe a bronchitis brings her back with fever and all of that. And all of a sudden, being in that state, she only probably feels that she's going down.
1: I don't know what would be worse, because we chatted in the past about these kids that are in these permanent seizures. Right. Can't move, can't do anything. They are completely aware of everything that's going on. That's so the input's way. there, but no capacity for output. Yeah, no, it's that monstrous. Might, but this might even be worse, where you switch in and out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 No, it's it sucks. I'm not looking forward to either.
0: No, definitely. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that, in fact... I mean, it's hard enough when somebody has their own ability to express themselves, because clearly you, what you want when you're severely compromising one way or another shifts over time. There are moments you're like, "The hell am I doing this for? Let me go." There are moments where you're trying to fight to stay and do this and that and the other. So let alone when somebody can express themselves, but when they can't, it's really hell in terms of even figuring out what's the right thing because there is no right thing. You know what I mean? It's like it's that person, the only person who can make a call about anything is you. And that person can't answer. And that person can answer. And so, of course, that's...
2: And that brings us to another theme in the book that is the underlying theme that is the right to die with dignity. Because, of course, in a situation like that, you know, um you question yourself if you are the caregiver if you are the the caretaker of this person if what this person really wants you know what she would choose if she can choose on her own and uh, that's a terrible responsibility and uh, at the same time it's really of course it's a super tough choice but it's also a very difficult choice to separate what you want for her
1: Of course, you want to get better.
2: What you can interpret, you know, uh, and how do you interpret, you know. And sometimes you can interpret, but maybe you don't want to see it, you know, because you you don't want to let go, you know. And so this is the theme. But then um, going into what the reality is about the right to die with dignity, the situation is that this story is set in Italy. Italy is a Catholic country. And uh, the health system is heavily dominated by religion. Because just to say, in hospitals, basically I think 80% of the nurses are nuns. Many times, not maybe not in all the public hospitals, but uh, like in private clinics yeah. and all of that, that are still part of the health system. Sure. Because I mean, in Italy, first of all, there is uh, universal health, no? so. Um, different that in America, you have a right to health assistance without paying health insurance. Right. So, the public system works. Of course, there are long lines and all of that, but there are also in the United States. So, the problem is then there are private clinics because if the... if the public system cannot guarantee, like, let's say, rehabilitation, no? of course, when a person doesn't respond quickly, so maybe they give three months of rehabilitation. At the end of those three months, they're like, okay, she didn't improve. So we're sending her to long term, long term that is like, you know, basically. They don't do anything, right. Do nothing. Maybe you see a physical therapist once a week for half an hour. For the rest of the time you are left there on a wheelchair abandoned you know and uh, yeah sure they clean you up <laughs> you know maybe but that's all so over there too is not like an ideal situation but there is at least there is universal occurrence, some help because when you are faced by a choice like that okay to leave a person a young person and in a place like in long-term care when there is no chance that she improve, um, they actually try to tell you to take this person home. But how can you take this person home if you don't have the structure? You yeah. Know? So in that case, universal care is much better because it provides you with means at mm-hmm. least. No, I'm not saying that everybody could do it, but I'm saying at least you can go home with the necessary equipment, you know, equipment. And that sure is better, but, as I say, the first thing that they tell you, like I remember when uh, in my case when i um, when I arrived to the hospital and I met the surgeon, you know, the brain surgeon who operate my sister mm-hmm. the first thing he told me that uh, when I asked him how many chances there were after he told me how tragic was the situation, how low she was on the scale that tells you about consciousness and so the obvious question was like doctor how many chances she has to get better to get to a stage where she can still enjoy her life and the answer was like oh signora meaning miss mattioni that only god only god knows And I'm like, you are a doctor, a brain surgeon, (laughs) you know, or a neurologist, because the same thing happened to me with a neurologist. How can you tell me only God knows? Look at the tests, look at the scans, look at the MRI and tell me something.
0: Yeah, Because again, nobody's asking you, nobody's gonna quote you that. Oh, because it's understood that there is a variety of results possible, but give me at least a vague sense of
2: exactly. Not that I was gonna yeah. hold responsible, no, if of you course. Tell me, oh, that's their
1: know. fear, they don't like to give us of, yeah, yeah, of course. You told me there yeah, yeah. was yeah. one millionth of a chance and didn't come to be, yeah, yeah true. All but involved. in
2: that, just to tell you, when I came over here, when my sister was getting better, and so I came back to Los Angeles and I went to have an interview with a stem cell um, researcher, doctor and researcher in Mission Viejo. That doctor, I brought all the scans, all the MRI and all of that. He gave me precise answers. He told me what we could achieve if I was able to get her here on the plane and at what point she could arrive after that time, because of course, when you're talking about brain damage, time is a very important thing. So, if somebody doesn't wake up from a coma in a certain amount of time, there are many less chances that then yep. this person could be whole. Same thing with rehabilitation, neurological rehabilitation. When your neurons are not uh, used to work, uh, you know, it's not like after 10 years old. Yeah, yeah, sudden. suddenly kicks in, of course. Right? Yep. So
0: no, definitely yeah, that's rough that's and rough in Italy,
2: exactly last thing, the right to die with dignity is not existent completely, yeah. like there is no way it doesn't matter if the family get together or, uh, you know
0: but I mean, when not you think all. about it in most places in the world it's still terrible in that regard True, it's but still, in uh, the
2: United States, there are, actually, there are
0: a few cases where there sp- there's more room. States, I mean, definitely more than a, 20 years ago or so. Exactly. Because 20 is, years but, ago, even in US, was.
2: Yeah, and if somebody's interested, there is an association actually called Compassionate Choices, Compassionate Choice, and they do a fantastic work. And right. they, if you write them, they tell you everything about your state yeah. and what you need to know. And there are a. Not a majority, definitely, but I think 11 states by now that allow, you know, a compassionate choice.
1: But this isn't pulling the plug. This is full-on euthanasia to shut down somebody that could go on. Yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah. Because the problem is uh, is not to recognize. I mean, if you are... Um, uh, Terminal cancer, there is absolutely nothing to do. That's considered a possibility, right? Right. But if you are a situation like that, instead they're like, "Well, the the heart is still beating, she breathes on her own, right? Who cares?" So there's no right.
0: never mind that there are cases where even the pulling the plug is heavily. Oh, absolutely. Oh no, bound. that's not an easy. But, but even, but especially when it's not just a matter of pulling the plug, it's just that you don't have a life anymore. And uh, but yeah, no, that's gets pretty terrible and to me, that's one of the things I've always been pretty hardcore about because to me, it's like everybody should be able to make their own choice now, even in a case where clearly somebody cannot express their voice well, then there's somebody else family member who can choose for them and that's why, you know, direct uh, advanced directives are important where somebody else can make the call for you because at the end of the day there can be no institution, no state, no nothing that decides exactly. for you when it comes to these things. It's like, I mean, I'm even, like, I always hear people, and I get it, it comes from a good place, but I hear all the time people who are, uh, if they hear of anybody who want to kill themselves for any reason, they are like, think about how great life is and that kind of stuff, right? And I'm like, maybe, maybe not, you know? What the hell do I know what it means like, what it means to live in your body to live with whatever problems you have to what i my standard answers anytime somebody and it happened a few times that somebody clearly expressed that they were planning to kill themselves has always been i get it i mean i don't because of course it's your stuff but i i can respect whatever give it three months see how you feel in three months if you still feel the same three months then okay maybe you got something going but also you know as much as I do that sometimes stuff feels impossible and terrible and atrocious and x time amount later it doesn't quite feel that bad so but if you still feel month after month year after year the same thing yeah, would the hell order that you need to suffer forever? You know, it's like I get it. I mean, it's like if that's how you feel, it's definitely not my place to tell you no. And it's, but that's not a popular thing to say.
2: Exactly, it's very People difficult that, to say that publicly, even if I yeah. totally agree. I mean, I respect the choice of somebody who decides yeah. to terminate their lives if they think that. They cannot live a life like that. It's impossible. It makes them suffer. And sure, like you, if it is a friend asking me, I would do the same. I would say, give it another try. Maybe yeah. just wait a little, but not pushing, because no, no. Uh, ultimately, is your life. Is one of the few things that we really can have yeah, well, control Yeah, what should be your on, freedom, like right? I mean, it's crazy. Like we are pushed. You know, all the choices are. Yeah a complete pressure to do this and this by even, uh, of course, the government, uh, your church. religious uh, your, authorities, yeah, Exactly, yes, of every kind of authority, you know, your teachers in school or something yeah, like that. Like and I'm like, hey, you know, this is the same thing. I mean, I don't want to uh, transgress, but uh, talking about the abortion, right? And right. It's like, hey, it's my body.
0: Right, so right, right. I'm
2: the one who needs to make a choice. Same thing is my life.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's an odd one. It's definitely an odd one in that regard. On a different note, like in regards to writing, I mean my thing now when I get emails from people are like, Oh, you publish books, tell me about how I wanna write this thing. My first reaction is always like, I am so sorry he's like please don't <laughs> do something else instead because <laughs> know because yeah. uh, i mean the reality is that again unless you hit it where you write uh, your Gerard martin uh, publishing industry shit you know it's a ter- like as you say there are three gazillion new things being published all the time the overwhelming majority don't even sell enough copies to fill uh, a room let alone uh, you know you got your 50 friends who buy a copy and or even
2: if not, I mean, I told you, you now when I got the the stats from California sister. You now I mean, in one year, it sold almost two thousand books. Right. And I was like,
0: it's nothing. Yeah. Very
2: bad. And my publisher was like, no, very good. <laughs> you know, because of course, when you compare yeah. to the idea that the average sales for a book is two hundred copies. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. I mean, that includes bestsellers. to the guy who published, you know, his things and, uh, and nobody his buys, aunt his yeah. mom and uh, But Maybe. it's crazy because 200 copies is really ridiculous.
1: Does anybody even read anymore? Well, and that's and, and I think
2: it's like
0: there's so much that's you know you read a website, you yeah. read a thing, you read a, exactly. There's a ton of that kind of reading, but of course the I'm gonna get a 300-page book and sit there and read it all cover to cover. Rougher. And so in that regard, uh, I mean, it's it's funny because clearly for 99% of writers it's purely a labor of love. Because if you exactly. add all the hours that you put into it, and you've been working at McDonald's, you would be doing way better financially than <laughs> you do by publishing no, a book.
2: It's true. I mean, if you consider the time oh, yeah. and all of that. In fact, the reality is that's another thing. Uh, in the last 10 years, um, well, exactly, many more books and yeah. all of that. What happened also, what happened is that uh, the age of the authors grew exponentially older. because what happened is people who retire and uh, they always had this idea, Wanted this to write dream of writing a book, and writing and, uh, a book. Yeah. that is fantastic for them sure, because sure. of course they can write a book and meanwhile they have an income coming yeah, in yeah. from other things. No. I mean, I wrote my books all the time because I had an income coming from my journal. Otherwise, I couldn't do it. I would definitely not survive on my books, even when the publishing industry was much better. Yeah, of course. I I mean, I started to publish in 1996 and was definitely different environment. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, you cannot do it. You know, you can survive just. um, No doing books unless you do like 20 books for $50,000 as I was saying you know that you write basically a book every three months you know you publish a book every I mean, it is
0: like what I did uh, on the warrior's path which was by far my most popular book and it's considered a super success you know again super success in relative terms and I think it's like I look at it and it has been uh, it's actually 20 years now that has been published in US and I think I made I don't know $30,000, $30,000, which is a lot for a oh, book, yeah. but then when and you break it down, years. it's like, right. it's about a 1000 bucks a year. It's like, okay, <laughs> nice, thanks. <laughs> <Yeah>. It's uh, <laughs> yeah. it's not exactly... Yeah, the good
2: uh, thing is that it's not like you kept working for 20 years. No. So that's good. You know, But,
0: meaning, you yeah. know, in terms of income, right. it's, but if it's it was not that, that it came it all in the first year. I mean, it's uh, yeah, spread if, over. True. Like, if you are to think about it, making a living on it, I would have to write about 30 of those books a year or something like that you know where you're like uh, no not even yeah 30 of those books a year I would be making uh, I lost the math whatever but in any case (laughs) well
1: that's why those movie writers are so desperate to get you know some sort of thing off all these streaming deals yeah yeah of course because they're just going to be robbed they've already been robbed they get robbed over and over again
0: no in fact it's a strange uh, it's a strange gig it's a strange gig that's why in fact you know even if you let's say with music you know everybody's pirating left and right books most people start pirating pdfs and things you know think about i mean i'm not going to make the moral preaching to anybody i'm just saying like think about which ones you're pirating you know are you pirating somebody some motor who has been dead for 50 years pff, pirate away you know there's just but if you are talking about probably a writer who's not Gerard Martin, who's not sitting on millions and millions of dollars, you, even if you end up pirating the book, you finding their website and sending them five or ten bucks saying, I enjoyed your book, here is a donation, is probably more than they make in reviewing the book, doing thing, things yeah. that... Even to say, that's why to me is like, even, yeah, you pirate a bunch of music, I get it, just everybody mm-hmm. else does. But like, I remember there was a group of ladies who later became actually pretty big, but like they were singers from Georgia, not as Georgia US, Georgia, mm-hmm. the country. And, uh, and I remember, you know, I couldn't find the thing to download their stuff on their website because it looked like crap back then. I found it as a pirated YouTube type of thing. And then I, but I found on their thing the donate button, and I sent them ten bucks for a song because I was like, you know, these are people for whom ten bucks make a difference, not like uh, the multi-million dollar author. So
2: don't want to do a monetary,
0: you
2: know, token. You Don't want to do a donation. Which you should if you're
0: grabbing stuff from living people. No, I
2: agree, and it's a good way also to show appreciation and all of that but if you want to support an author there are so many ways that don't cost you a dime I mean you can on social media you can put I read this you know and uh, even if it's not a review you don't feel like doing a review put a photo of yourself with the book or something like that those are great ways to support Charp. somebody.
1: Well speaking of reviews, someone's got a 4.6 on Goodreads with this book not bad that's my favorite not place bad. to the learn funny about thing books
2: is that uh, it was 4.8 and then as always happened somebody put a rating of one
0: of course of course and
2: of course is a rating not a review is anonymous that happens to everybody It's mm-hmm. crazy, you know. And so immediately it went to 4.6.
0: My favorite are the ones who put a rating on one and write a review and tell you, this book was amazing. It's my favorite <laughs> thing ever. And they clearly <laughs> click the wrong button oh. where they were meant to put five and they click one. <gasps> yeah. And they are like...
2: That can happen too. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, the, yeah, not yeah. to me, it didn't happen. It happened yeah. to have this, the anonymous uh, uh, rating that is like somebody. There is no way. It's like when you, when you read the products reviews that... Some, sometimes you go crazy because yeah. it's like 4.8 and you said fantastic and then there is like 3% one right. you go to read them and it's like Okay, <laughs> somebody has always. Of course. To say something, no, I mean that's you
1: know? that's a given. That's yeah. always that's somebody's joy in their whole life. Yeah, you yeah. Go around shitting yeah. on things to make themselves no, feel.
2: No, I was fortunate. I mean, I have more than one hundred reviews from real readers, and you know they're good. I never read a review that is bad. Never under four.
0: Nice. You won a bunch of awards for the book. That was I awesome. I won ten awards. That was yeah.
2: totally unexpected, you know. And uh, yeah, I won't go into enumerating them. That is pretty boring. If somebody's interested, just go on the Amazon page, right. <laughs> and some of them are listed. Yeah. But yeah, awards don't make you don't make books sell. Sure. But they are, you know, good recognitions. So.
0: Sweet. Anything else you want to throw out there?
2: I think we're done.
0: Cool. So you guys check it out. We'll put a link in the episode notes. The title of the book is California Sister. You know the good things to do. Uh write reviews, uh, do all the good stuff.
2: And if uh, they want to follow on Instagram @gloriematildecom, I love for his for the book's birthday, I have a giveaway of some signed copies.
0: Sweet. Awesome. Cool. Thank you so much.
1: the fuck gives the bees one thing. That's the end. Of another fine episode of the Drunken Dials podcast. Now that was just plain fun. I loved how it got into not just about the book itself, but writing and all the intricacies of that. A pretty fascinating conversation. I think folks are probably dug it.
0: I hope so. That uh, you know my own sweet mother doesn't just show up for any reason. So this <laughs> is uh, this should be a good one. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And on that note, I want to wish you all
1: a very good day. Yeah, be safe, everybody. We'll see you soon. Bye. Would you like to hear a terrible story? Yes, always.
0: One day the road shall teach you. What have we learned this week? Be calm, be kind, be brave.
1: Yep, words to live by. See you guys. Soon. D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I. Good shit. R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N and the numeral one. one. And so ends another awesome episode of the Drunken Dallas Podcast. Be sure to keep your ears peeled for another mind-expanding episode coming soon. We'll be tweeting you as they come out. You can keep track of Danielli at D Bolelli. That's D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I. And you can find me on Twitter at Richimon1, R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N, and the numeral one. We'll see y'all soon. Woo!